0: Some of you are familiar with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and some of you are not. He was a theologian who supported the German resistance in their plots to kill Adolf Hitler. He was one of the leaders who split the Lutheran State Church in Germany when he perceived it was being co-opted and corrupted by the Nazis. He set up and ran a secret seminary for ministerial students in this new confessing church. And toward the end of World War II, he was arrested with some of his family and co-conspirators. And after being kept in various prisons, he was sent to Flossenburg concentration camp and was executed just three weeks before the German surrender on Hitler's personal orders. They came to take him away after a Sunday service, and he asked an English prisoner to remember him to English friends who were un- unable to persuade the Allies that there was such a thing as a good German working for peace from within. And as he was taken away, he said to Payne Best, he said, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. As compelling as is his personal story, it was his theological grappling that has really made him important in many ways, and certainly in my life. He struggled with how to be a Christian in an age of war and destruction. What was truth? What was justice? And, and, and what was the meaning of resistance? He saw fellow prisoners who were professing Christians who seemed compromised and fearful and tearful. And he saw self-professed atheist resistance fighters who he saw as hopeful and courageous, and clear, and he wondered what was going on, and so some of his most tantalizing theological work came in unsystematic thoughts in letters to various friends and family members. And in one such letter, important one, April 30th, 1944, he asked the question, how can Christ be Lord of the religionless? How can Christ be Lord of the religionless? And he gave rise to a phrase, that has exercised my imagination since undergraduate days, religionless Christianity. What is religionless Christianity? Because he saw the age of religion coming to an end, by which he meant the age of Christianity garbed in the powerful institutions and state-sponsored churches. And he imagined instead, as this world passed away, he imagined Christian witness born of prayer and righteous action, and that the Christian cause would be quiet and hidden until it was revealed in some new garb, some new way. He saw the need for faith, the need for all of us to put on Christ as St. Paul had it, rather than adopting the outward and visible forms of piety and religion. It was an important task then, and as we talk about moving into a post-Christian, post-cultural Christian reality it's an important task today, as it ever was, as it ever was. The, Ara- the Areopagus on the Parthenon Hill in Athens, from which Paul preached, became Mars Hill in when it got Eng- Latin and English, which is why there are so many Mars Hill Baptist churches. It's about this passage. The Areopagus was a high spot on the Acropolis. And it was essentially where something like a court of appeals met. And Paul was taken there to explain himself. And he preached this extraordinary sermon, which began by saying, Athenians, I see you are how religious you are in any way, in every way. And imagine if he was to stand in the, before the court of public opinion today and begin a sermon, I see how religious you are in every way. People would shout, no, no, we are nuns. And I don't mean sisters. I mean people who say none when asked their religious preference. And, and, and it's a growing group, not just found in Seattle. Or maybe they would say, no, no, we're not religious. We're spiritual but not religious. And what would Paul say? How would Paul respond to this? I think he'd say, let's get to the point. I think he'd say, whatever, but let's get to the point whatever. But as I looked through your city, I looked carefully at the objects of your worship. And I saw your temples and your altars called gyms and coffee shops and malls and stadia that put the Colosseum to shame. And I saw how much time and attention you give to your little screens that you carry around and your huge screens that you keep in your homes. But I saw another altar And I saw another temple made up of all kinds of philosophies and ideas, all jumbled together, practices, and given the name spirituality and marked unknown. And so what you call unknown, I now proclaim to you. And he would perhaps continue to proclaim, as he did all those years ago in Athens, the God who made the world and everything that is in it, the one who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands. And he would call us to repent, just like we're doing in baptism, to turn again, to turn to what is really important and life-giving and allow that to shape us, the living God, the source of all true spirituality and spiritual practice so that we live more courageously and more hopefully and more authentically and more graciously, more generously and more lovingly than we ever imagined possible. He would invite the nuns and the SBNRs, the spiritual but not religious types, to commit to a particular way, a way of real life in a community of specific commitment. Linda Mercadanti, ...is a seminary professor, Methodist, I believe, and she's done significant work, research into the wide variety of people, many of us, I imagine, but many, many of our friends who identify themselves comfortably as spiritual but not religious. And she's published her work as Belief Without Borders. And she concludes that much of what leads people to define themselves that way is a rejection of what they see as religious and she probes the content to find out what what is actually being rejected here. And Paul's challenge of yesteryear is our challenge of today, because what the SBNRs reject, most, if not all of us, would reject as well. They reject religious exclusivism. My way is the only way. They reject the idea of a wrathful God, one whose alleged interventions in human affairs appear to be magic, one who would consign people for eternity, to heaven or hell a static afterlife they reject authoritarian tradition and religious communities that appear to them as non experiential and inauthentic they reject anything that smacks of humans being fundamentally born bad and Mercadanti goes on to point out that they have no interest in these assumptions being challenged because that would Undermine the rhetoric, and that would mean they'd actually have to make some choices that they don't have to make as long as they can hold on to that view of religion. Disproving these things, she writes, would hinder the rhetoric. There are many implications of being spiritual but not religious in this movement, but one of them is there is a baby being thrown out with the bathwater. For all the benefits of adopting, A generic spirituality such as avoiding religious conflict, being more tolerant of diversity, these are good things. There's a cost in terms of real and genuine spiritual growth, by which I mean growing and trusting God so that we live more freely, more graciously, more hopefully, and less alone and less abandoned when life is back. The espionars tend to talk about community. But according to this research, they never real they rarely find any that inspire commitment. And they tend to talk about religious practice without ever engaging any set of practices deeply enough for them to become genuine uh, means or modes or avenues of spiritual transformation. Now, well, these are obviously generalizations. SPNRs can be like people scared of making a commitment but they never learn that it's in giving ourselves away that we become most fully the person we were created to be. They're like commitment-phobic people who finally, finally, finally decide to make a lifelong commitment to a partner or a spouse and suddenly decide they're liberated because they don't have to date anymore. You know, there's a liberating aspect to binding ourselves to one another, but it's counterintuitive, and that's what religion is. I bind. We bind ourselves in a specific community to a wide variety of practices so that we may live more freely and more gracefully as the people we were created to be. doctor and Merkin-Danti tells a fascinating story. She interviewed a group of graduates of an interfaith seminary. I presume these ministers, interfaith ministers, could talk to any of us without giving offence. And she asked them to raise their hands if they had been deeply impacted by Islam. And they said, they all put their hands up. She said, now put them down if you don't observe Ramadan. Put them down if you don't pray five times a day. And as she went through the practice, all hands went down. And she did the same thing with Christianity. The same thing with Judaism. Are you in, Have you been profoundly shaped by Judaism? Oh, yes. Do you observe the Sabbath? Whoops and what happened what happened was that they they had ideas mishmash but no sustained sustaining practices out of these traditions they had studied brothers and sisters we are the inheritors of a spiritual treasure one that recognizes that all spiritual experience is by definition a divine gift of grace which cannot be manipulated or conjured, a tradition and a story that addresses some of the deepest realities about ourselves, our guilt, our shame, our brokenness, as much as our joy and our hope and our integrity. In our current understanding We look for the effects of spiritual practice, our prayer and our worship, our service to others, our generosity, chief among them. We look for the effects in our lives and we choose freely to bind ourselves to God and one another in a particular tradition through baptism and through the baptismal covenant and the regular renewal of that covenant. Those beautiful children, these beautiful ten children who are being baptized today, are being given the gift of a particular tradition, given the gift of a particular religious community, one with rich spiritual resources for their whole lives long, and one whose authenticity they will have to see first in their immediate families. We talked about this with parents and godparents yesterday, and then in their godparents, and then in the rest of us as we do our level best by God's grace to fulfill our promise to do all in our power to support them in their life in faith, their life learning to trust in God's unspeakable love for each of them and for every one of us whom God has made and how that helps us live free. The religious, religionless age which Bonhoeffer expected is upon us again. What we can and must do is represent Christ, put on Christ, as religionless Christians. It's not about piety. It's not about others being wrong. It's not about our ways the only way. It's about love. It's about what matters. It's about living the lives we were created to live. It's about sharing in each other's joys and each other's sorrows. It's about faith or trust in God before it's about family tradition or cultural norms or religious institutions. Christian faith, our faith, will only be attractive as God makes us attractive by the quality of our lives. Measured not by grasping, not by wealth, not by power, but marked by integrity and character. hope. And so may it be for these children, and so it may be for every one of us, and so may it be for those yet to hear an invitation to real life, abundant life, in our midst as followers of Jesus. I offer this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.